RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. Stephen Franks is a nationally known lawyer, expert in company and securities law and law reform. He's also on the governing council of the Free Speech Union. He's been in Parliament. There's a big, long list I could go through, but we'd burn up some time. So let's go straight to it. Stephen Franks, welcome to Reality Check Radio. It's great to have you. Thanks for making some time for us. A pleasure. Okay. So I want to, first of all, read this uh, first part of a tweet that you put out on the 7th of September. Just home from River of Freedom, the film's Wellington premiere, essential viewing for Kiwis puzzled by New Zealand's rapid catch-up to the Anglo world's political polarisation. In a couple of visually absorbing hours, it shows what MSN not only failed to cover, but actively lied about in an open conspiracy with our entire political ruling class. The ruling class had decided to revile, impoverish, and other the mandate heretics. Okay, so that movie affected you. Yeah, it did. Um, it, it reminded me because the, the protest itself affected me. I, I hadn't, to be fair, I hadn't paid a lot of attention to the position of people in the mandate. I was concerned. My law firm put out very early on in, in the COVID response, we put out or posted a, a legal opinion that they were acting unlawfully because essentially they they were ignoring a complete code that had been created for pandemic response and they were just running by the seat of their pants and making stuff up and making announcements about what was required and what the law said when it didn't. So we'd always been sceptical about the legal quality of what they were doing, but it hadn't hit home to me in any way. I, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Um, in my sort of work, uh, the mandates, even if if there had been a mandate problem, you know, a lot of us were working from home. We could easily um, ignore those whose lives were affected. And, and as I said, I hadn't been indifferent. I'd been very angry about the um, the privilege that was being abused in the MIQ system and the queue jumpers and the bringing in the DJs and the, the sort of arrogance of power that was treating these really extraordinary um, constraining rights as uh, something that that, that they could apply um, almost with indifference to the effect on on people. I'd been very angry, um, as I think many were, about one or two particular cases, the the guy who came home to, to say goodbye to his dying father and who was, wasn't allowed out a day early from MIQ to go and see him before he died. Those those stories really told about the callousness of the way people were exercising these powers. But as I said, other than that, it hadn't impacted me personally. I went first went through the demonstration because I was on my way to see someone at Parliament and I was wearing a suit and a mask and I had seen some accounts of it being a pretty hostile group of ferals. So I wondered if I was going to be, you know, accosted as I went through. And people were perfectly friendly. Many of them looked perfectly normal. And I went back to the office and said, I've just been through the demonstration and it doesn't look like it's been described. And then the next night, I thought, I must go down and see how that demo is going because I understand the police are trying to move it on. 
And you should know that I was a lefty when I was a student and I went on many demonstrations and uh, I won't say I'm a connoisseur of them, but there was a bit of deja vu going through a a demo. And I went back as a, um, you could say say it was a sort of voyeur interest, but it was an observer interest and a curiosity. And I spent an hour or so there and, and it was after, I think it was after the first attempt to police move them on. And they were in that state of welded together um, excitement that happens when you're a group of people who don't know each other, but you all faced a, a common threat. And so on the set, on the Friday night after work, I thought I'm going to go down and experience this. And, and uh, it was terrible weather. Do you remember the rain yeah, was pouring yeah. down? Mallard had by then tried, had turned the sprinklers on and, and the music, the, he was trying to drive them out with adverse music. I knew a bit about those tactics because I, as an MP, I went on a State Department trip to the US and met um, the police, deputy police chief in New York, who was explaining how they'd cleaned up the streets and got rid of a lot of the threat from vagrants. And quite a lot of that involved sprinklers in the parks and 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 music they didn't like. An old classical, tactic, yeah. yeah. Classical music. So I, I didn't really, I wasn't, I, I oh, could understand. not Barry Manilow? Because they used Barry Manilow and a few others, right? Yeah. They did too, and, and Baby Shark. That's it. And uh, so I I was down there in my, all my coat and I thought, these people are in for a terrible night. The forecast is dreadful. I suspect that um, the speaker's going to win. They'll have drifted away. They'll have to go somewhere and get shelter. And I went back the next morning, Saturday morning with my dog, and totally wrapped up because it was still terrible weather. And the atmosphere was just amazing. The, the people had just decided to endure it, and they'd been dancing and singing, and the, uh, there was a lot of support coming in. Locals, I found out later, people I know very well, I would never have suspected of, of it, had um, been cooking since 6 a.m. and t- <laughs> taking bricks down. And it was just this outpouring of support for people who are plainly being picked on by the state. Um, I should say, I have never had any doubt that, the, that a demonstration has to be ended and that the police were in a terrible position and uh, that at some stage, if you've got a, a determined lot of protesters and the police have their duty, there's going to be force and it's going to be ugly. Don't, so wait I, on, don't don't the politicians have a duty as well? Yeah, we'll, come, we'll, come, we'll yeah, come back okay. to that. All right, we'll get into that. But yeah, you know how long, I didn't ask you in advance how long we've got, but this is the story. Well, yeah. that morning was really quite emotional. I, I started talking to people and asking them their story. And one of them that really struck me, I'll, I'll get teary as I tell it, but it was a guy standing just in front of me or beside me with a, a brand new MacPack Parker, and the label was still on it. And I said, you didn't come prepared, did you? And he said, no, I certainly didn't. I didn't even bring sleeping bag. In fact, I didn't even mean to come up. I'm from from the Waikato, but I didn't have any idea I'd be here. So, so how did that work? And he, he said, well, I'm a farmer, and I went down to the gate to get the mail, and, and my neighbour was there with his wife and three kids. And they're all standing there, and uh, I said, well, what are you doing? And he said, oh, we're waiting for the convoy to come past. He said, I hadn't really heard about this convoy. And, but he explained, and and, he, and just then it started coming past, and they were waving and excited, and 
I noticed he had tears in his eyes. This this is the his neighbour. And I said, what's wrong? What's And then the neighbour explained that they'd been isolated for months. The kids hadn't been able to go to the library or the pool or do anything, and they hadn't wanted to um, force themselves on any of us, so they hadn't really told us how, how alone they were. They just just had been completely alone. And he said, I felt so ashamed of myself, I jumped in the car and followed them. <laughs> so, well, okay. <laughs> Right off, right off the bat, yeah, no preparation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was others. There were there were a number of stories that I heard, and I, I just became really moved by it that there'd been this whole group of New Zealanders who had been targeted and deliberately uh, made to feel like um, lepers and, and outsiders and letting this top side down, all the other things that were alleged to them, and... So I stayed there for a good part of the day uh, and um, also really enjoyed it. I loved seeing the Hare Krishnas. They're just the same as they were. They had been 50 years earlier. Yeah. And I I enjoyed the contrast, you know, the Maori activists, the Kamata, the um, the people who, who'd been teachers or nurses who were just desperately happy to have people they could share their experience with and because if you recall we're still still at that stage all supposed to be wearing masks and so for them partly it was a big celebration of being out being able to be all together overtly saying we're no longer obeying you guys and that's important so that's the that's my story of how i came to um be involved and to feel that i knew it and why when the invitation was sent you want to go and see this film i said yes even though I expected it to be a whole lot of shaky shots from um, iPhones um, cobbled together uh, in an amateurish way. I know I didn't have any idea who'd put it together or anything about it, but I, I went along curious but didn't expect to have something with all the professional values that that film showed. Yeah, okay, so thinking about some of the things you've, you've said there, you've been in Parliament before and you talked about the police's you know, the, the the terrible position they're in. But they were kind of put in that position by politicians. You've been on the inside. What do you think stopped politicians from engaging in any sort of way as an entire group? How, how does that happen, do you think? I think we recruit politicians now to be a diversity shop window. And I think that there are very few parts people in Parliament now who are genuinely leaders, who have demonstrated it by building a business, building an organisation, holding it together through, thick, you know, times thick and thin. Uh, it used to be that your neighbours and sort of supported you to become a member of Parliament when you'd demonstrated community leadership for many years. You wouldn't probably wouldn't have thought of it before you are 45 or 50. Now, of course, people think that representation means creating this facsimile of of the population that's immaterial to them, whether you've demonstrated achievement or knowledge or got anything to bring, all you bring is your identity. So I'm very critical of the selection policy of parties, but really it's democracy. It's if you've got a, a feckless, um, poorly educated people who are frivolous and would rather, you know, would 
don't take any serious interest in what creates successful institutions and what doesn't, um, in a democracy, you'll get a reflection of that. And so it, it was really striking, though, because when I was in Parliament, Richard Preble, as our leader, would say in caucus, oh, there's a demo coming down on Tuesday. They'll be here and they'll be out in the forecourt. It's the anti-abortionists or it's the hikoi from somewhere or it's um, some other cause. Can I have a volunteer? We need at least someone's got to go and, and meet them. Um, can I have a volunteer? Uh, I don't think it should be me. It's sort of it's a bit politically risky for it to look as if I'm endorsing it, but it's our duty to go and do it. And, and I can remember talking about it one day saying why. And he said, look, we're paid here. We're selected and paid so that people of this country can feel that those who are debating where we go and our laws and policies have actually listened and can or they can be in touch with those who do it. They can feel that we've at least listened. We don't have to agree, but they've at least been heard. So one of you guys has got to go down there and, and talk to them. And I thought that Richard was right about that, and I thought that was a pretty universal thing because there nearly always was um, people would show up to meet a demonstration, and we would walk amongst them. And sometimes there were, it was hostile. I mean, I was there when when uh, the, they they gave instructions to my family on how to avoid or to reduce the risk of being blown up because there were threats and there was a white powder incident and Bill English and um, Richard both had police living with them because of the threats for some months. I mean, it was not widely known, but there, there were a number of threats. And so when you walked out into a crowd that didn't like you, um, as I did at the first sensible sentencing meeting, you you felt this is this is a duty. This isn't what I really want to be doing. But I thought, I was just disgusted that the MPs all sat up there in the ivory castle and and wouldn't come down and and just listen and talk. And worse still, when they started repeating all the nonsense that was coming from the media from the journalists who also wouldn't come down a, a, about the kind of people were there and the atmosphere and what they were doing and saying. I'm sure there must. Every demo attracts weirdos. Every demo has its hangers-on. Try to to uh, use the attention in a way, but so I'm sure that um, it wasn't all made up. That there would have been some catcalling and unpleasant, you know, stuff. But I never saw it. In all the hours I was there, um, one of my law partners came through on his way from work every morning. He never saw it, and others I've spoken to, I, I never came across any of that. Uh, a friend of mine who's a teacher at Victoria University said they were all told to go home and they closed the university because of all these horrible people out there. He refused, an old guy like us, he just refused and kept going to work. He said it was interesting walking through and they were polite to him. So I think the media is also populated with, you know, the bimbo parade or the parade of likely, likely diversity crowd and they don't have a dedication to getting the story, to testing it. They don't have a dedication to getting the untold bits. They're there as repeaters of, as it proved in that demonstration, to repeat the the the, the political lines of their masters. Yeah, uh, you know, you described your encounter with you know this thing on multiple occasions, 
and you kind of felt it. And I think people who watch the movie felt it. There's a feeling you'd you'd have to have some sort of stunted emotional thing going on, not to, you know, if you're a journalist and you're looking at it and you can see what's going on day to day, you get a feel for things, but that's not enough. You know, what's happened to people, I guess, is what I'm kind of wondering. And the same with the politicians, Michael Wood, calling them anti-Semites and and, uh, uh, anti-Muslim. Yet there was this, you know, cornucopia of cultures and races there. So, I mean, it was just BS what he was saying. It was just total BS. Well, I met Barry Sofer. Barry Sofer came walking through and I was there and we chatted for a while. And Barry was just, he was absolutely derisive about the attitude of the other gallery journalists who would accept the instruction. It would have been the first thing in, 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 I say, in my day when I was in Parliament. I can't imagine a speaker expecting the gallery not to disobey immediately if they were told not to go out and talk to a demonstration. So what would be lauded over them? A worry that access is cut, that they're sort of pushed to the side of the game? That the I think it's groupthink. I mean, I, I don't know. I heard suggestions that they'd been told they'd have their, their press gallery accreditation withdrawn or that in some way there'd be some penalty. But it's the same question about the, all the MPs in the caucuses. Didn't, did not one of them say, you're not my boss? I'm elected by the people of XYZ. I mean, at the very sure, MMP's got a whole lot of toadies who have to be their toady because of the the list. But there's there's a number of MPs who are there because their electorates put them there. Surely one of them would have said, I want to, I don't want this filtered. I want to get this information directly. But no, I mean there's group thinks this is why I started by saying I'm concerned, really concerned about what happens when you are led by a people like a bunch of people, none of whom are are demonstrated leaders. They can be leaders within politics because that's a specialist game that you learn and you become skilled at. But Parliament should be representatives of the best that we can select across the country of people who've demonstrated leadership. When they come with established um, age experience and authority, then they're not going to be bossed around into this nutty group thing. But clearly, within the gallery and within every caucus, they were content to watch until finally, I think, David uh, David um, from Ant came down. I don't think any other serving MP came through that I remember. Well, I don't think but, David um, Seymour went through the actual protest. I asked indeed. him about that. I don't think he actually did right. that. And he's still kind of, you know, making excuses. Um, about all that. Um, it's been described this whole last period of time as a kind of an exhibition of military-grade propaganda techniques, psyops. And I- I'm wondering what you think about the power of propaganda as transmitted through the media, but also um, the government, because you had, you know, safe and effective and and this, the prime minister doing the kind of the motherly thing uh, was all about safety and keeping you safe. But really, it was the complete opposite of that. It was the 180 degree. And as for the um, politicians, there probably were some that pushed back. In your experience, what would stop them following that conscience? There would have to be some pretty heavyweight downsides to persuade you to hold fire, right? 
I, I think that's um, I, I think the there's a lot of evidence around the world that in fact not much is required to get people to act in concert and to and to exclude and act dreadfully towards someone who's an outsider. And, and to be fair, human society would be intolerable if we weren't strongly impelled to be amenable and to follow the leader. I mean, most of us, certainly by my age, have been in organisations where the leadership's uncertain, where there's divided leadership, competing sources of power. And it almost doesn't matter who's right and who's wrong. They're just awful until it's sorted out who's the boss. And and we are pack animals. And so I don't think you need hugely sophisticated penalties, you've got an awful lot of human nature is to be compliant and to uh, be on side with whoever the perceived leading elements are. And also, if you recall, we were coming out of an era when we were quite proud of ourselves for being, um, you know, we'd had a year of living quite well while the rest of the world was, it sounded as if it wasn't. And part of that had become because there was a pretty high level of voluntary compliance and a will for the government to be right. I, I think by this time, by the time of the protest, it had become plain that, as always, power had been abused and the money was being wasted and there were all sorts of uh, ancillary purposes being served and the burden wasn't being shared. There were all sorts of reasons to be very suspicious. But there was still a residue of this New Zealand Inc. thing that had appeared to serve us well for a year. I don't, I don't criticise, even though I say the, the. I don't think they. I think they were, they weren't competent. They were a bunch of jumped up university uh, lecturer types. Does they go for the bureaucrats as well behind the scenes and and leading the the various ministries involved? I'm thinking of Ashley Bloomfield and. And others who were uh, the police commissioner, uh, are they in the same camp as that? I, I I don't know enough directly to say. I mean, it looked as if they surrendered their judgment and lent their their independent authority to some pretty dodgy stuff. But you'd have to be inside to know what yep. pressures were and what they thought. And I think I think again, I put media in there. You know, the, the media desperately wanted to hear catastrophe stories and to find saviors and saints. And so that pink-haired woman who became a, um, a guru, you know, she showed her true colours you know, more recently when she led a couple of thousand of, of stupid scientists to try and, and um, vilify seven eminent scientists who were questioning the role of Mataranga Māori. And so we've seen some of these people more clearly since. But at the time, I, I, it's, it's, I, I want to be charitable, but I, I'm not charitable about the cowardice that was shown by the, the news media. I think everything about their history and their ethics and the pride they should have had in being independent challenges and sources should have had the news media out there going into that demonstration. Well, they're still carrying on with the same kind of rhetoric and um, labelling now as they were then. So not much has changed. 
Yeah, yeah. It's very entrenched. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's look at um, the aftermath, and and you've seen that the movie, and and you've got thoughts uh, post that. So the prime minister is on tape saying, "Yes, it is a two tier society," and laughing about it. People have had their livelihoods destroyed, being put in very difficult situations. Um, what should happen? As a matter of fairness, I guess now people have um, taken a huge sum, a huge hit on income and future potential. That has to be compensated for somehow, doesn't it? Wouldn't you think? I, I, well, I'm a, as a lawyer, I'm concerned about the notion that all wrongs can be righted or, or that we ought to try because there are many wrongs that. Even having a, a a facility for writing can compound the problem. I mean, if I take an example, it might seem remote, but it's not. That in after the Christchurch earthquake, a lot of people's lives went on hold for years until the insurance was sorted out, and they didn't couldn't make and didn't make decisions about where they lived and their and what they did with their houses, and the effect of that, I contrast with the situation in Japan after the their big earthquake and even the situation after tsunamis in, in uh, Indonesia, where we're not hanging out for, for an unfairness in life to be remedied. I think you get control of your life and you become healed much more quickly. In Japan, Typically, they only about fifteen percent of their losses are covered. It's essentially, I'm told, my daughter was, was an engineer and went up after that big earthquake, the Fukushima one. Um, the household typically will get enough that lets them get a start somewhere, so they can replace the tools if they're a business, or they can they'll be able to um, get going again, possibly in a rented house. They might even just be able to cheap a, a very cheap house. Japan allows you to build shelter because uh, they don't expect houses to last more than 50 years, so they don't have all this building code nonsense, except for safety. So I, I'd contrast. I'd say if we if we now said we're going to do a whole lot of remedying, it's it's just pouring enormous social effort into spilt milk, and it reinforces and, and the incentives for people to feel that their lives were ruined, when in fact they were very seriously affected, but probably not ruined. The biggest, for me, the biggest thing would be for the perpetrators of some of this falsehood, like TV One uh, and and the uh, other news media, would be to show that film so that New Zealanders generally could say to their neighbours, "I'm sorry, I see yeah. what you went." I think there's more than that. The particularly stuff who has been parroting the common turn line the Pravda line on all sorts of issues, they ought to um, take a look at the stuff they put out with the, the liars from the Disinformation Project and hang their heads in shame and do their utmost to promote at least an understanding of what's shown in this film. So you think it should be played on, on the mainstream oh, networks? Yeah. I've talked to the producers. They've had no interest from them. They've approached them, no interest not interested, not going there at this point. But you can make them do it, couldn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, it's still a government agency. It should be uh, – if if uh, Luxon 
and and um, if Acton National wanted to do a, a practical mea culpa, they would say this is going to be played on TV and TV one. This is going to be played. We'll pay for it to go on TV three. This will be something that allows people to understand how much what a, what an aberration we had in our history and our commitment to try and make sure we don't do it again. Okay, final couple of uh, questions, final question really. Where is New Zealand right now? Are we in some kind of precarious place? I mean, you've been around yeah, for a while, I've been around for a while. I think, I think we're led by infantile people and the leadership. A, a healthy democracy needs, as it's always been known, needs a vigorous and healthy fourth estate, and we don't have it. And you guys are searching out the stories that the mainstream have just got a, a consensus, an elite consensus to ignore. They're a bunch of, they're the priests of a new religion, and it's a sinister religion. It's a religion that relies, as they often have, on suppression of anyone who challenges authority. And, um, and, and they are um, incompetent. Okay. They, don't, they don't know history. They got. They don't even know New Zealand's history, let alone. <laughs> oh dear. Hey, it's been <laughs> um, it's been really interesting speaking with you. Thanks for making some time for us, uh, Stephen Franks, and uh, hopefully we can chat again sometime. It'll be great. Pleasure. RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio.